This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, September 30th, 2009. I'm Caleb Brown. Next week marks eight years since the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan. So are we closer to success? Or is success in Afghanistan as nebulous as Special Envoy Richard Holbrook's assertion that we'll know it when we see it? Malou Innocent, a foreign policy analyst at the Cato Institute, spoke at a forum September 14th, 2009. This is the bulk of that speech. I think in debates surrounding the war in Afghanistan, a view common among the political and military elite is that if the United States truly committed enough time and resources, possibly hundreds of thousands of troops for another 12 to 14 years, Washington could really turn that country around. General Stanley McChrystal, who commanded Special Operations Forces in Iraq and this summer became the commander of U.S. uh, military operations in Afghanistan, says he hopes to see an improvement on the ground with a fraction of those forces in as little as 18 to 24 months. However, there is a reason why the war in Afghanistan ranks at or near the bottom of polls tracking issues important to the American public and why most Americans who do have an opinion about the war oppose it and oppose sending more combat troops. It's because Americans understand intuitively that the question about Afghanistan is not about whether it's winnable, but whether it constitutes a vital national security interest. An essential national debate about whether we should really double down in Afghanistan has yet to be taken place. America still does not have a clearly articulated goal. This is why the conventional wisdom surrounding the war in Afghanistan about whether we should rebuild key institutions and create legitimate political systems is not so much misguided as much as it's misplaced. The issue is not about whether we can, but whether we should. This distinction is oftentimes overlooked. The question of what we can do in Afghanistan looks troubling. I have spoken to Western ambassadors, U.S. troops who have returned from Afghanistan, provincial Afghan tribal chiefs, and I am overwhelmed with a feeling that no matter how much we pour into Afghanistan, it shouldn't be measured in years, but in decades, many decades. And right now, the policy requires more troops than we can ever send. Add to that the burden of the spiraling financial crisis, and the time and resources required will not be accomplished within costs acceptable to the American public. Only recently has the debate surrounding the war in Afghanistan moved from the can to the should. Should we remain in Afghanistan? The answer, when stacked against our own interests and our own objective of dismantling, defeating, and disrupting al-Qaeda, is clearly no. Going after al-Qaeda does not require a long-term, large-scale presence in the region for several reasons. First, we must keep in mind that the regular military is wonderful for killing bad guys with disproportionate firepower, destroying enemy troop formations, or bombing their command centers, but not for finding hidden killers like terrorists. Our greatest successes scored against al-Qaeda have not relied on large numbers of U.S. troops. The scalpel of intelligence sharing, and foreign close cooperation with foreign law enforcement officials and agencies has done more to round up suspected terrorists than the sledgehammer of military force. In fact, most of the greatest successes scored against al-Qaeda, such as the snatch-and-grab operations that netted Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and Ramzi bin al-Sheib, have not relied on large numbers of U.S. troops. Second, whether we withdraw from Afghanistan or whether we stay, al-Qaeda can twist it into a victory for them and us into weakness. If we withdraw, we appear weak, even though the United States is responsible for almost half of the world's military spending, can project its power to the most inaccessible corners of the globe, and wields one of the planet's largest nuclear arsenals. Still, al-Qaeda can twist withdrawal into weakness. But America also appears weak if we remain there for too long. The military will appear bogged down. 
the strategy and the mission aimless. And despite our best efforts, military operations will continue to kill Afghan civilians, which will erode support for our presence. In addition, given the ideological nature of terrorism, our, our purpose and our presence will reinforce the revolutionary cause Al-Qaeda seeks to promote. And hand jihadists are a potent recruiting tool they will seek to exploit, as we have seen with the proliferation of Pakistani Taliban across the border. In addition, an extraordinarily costly and open-ended military occupation gives Osama bin Laden and his ilk exactly what they want. America's all-volunteer military force pressed to cope with an irregular, protracted war. Policymakers and the public at large should keep in mind that Osama bin Laden's stated objective is to ensnare us into multiple unending wars and to, quote, bleed America to the point of bankruptcy, unquote. Overall, remaining in Afghanistan is more likely to tarnish America's reputation and undermine U.S. security rather than withdrawal. Third, our policy towards Afghanistan is undermining core U.S. security interests in Pakistan. Here at Cato, we have a saying taken from French philosopher uh, Friedrich Bastiat, that which is seen and that which is not seen. Our drone operations have successfully killed a number of high-value targets and may have even seriously degraded al-Qaeda's global capabilities. But our policies are also pushing the powerful jihadist insurgency across the border into Pakistan, carrying with it potentially devastating implications. For lack of a better analogy, the Afghanistan-Pakistan border is like a balloon. Pushing down on one side forces elements to the other. It doesn't eliminate the threat, especially when you consider that the border between these two countries is virtually non-existent. And that's also just essentially a line on Western maps and not in the hearts and minds of the militants that are fighting across this border. Last summer, I was fortunate enough to visit Peshawar, the administrative center of the federally administered tribal areas. I spoke with several South Waziri tribesmen about the collateral damage unleashed by U.S. missile strikes. They noted that airstrikes allow militants to define themselves as a force against the injustice of America's occupation next door and against the Pakistani government. As early as 2007, in response to repeated Pakistani army incursions, along with a growing number of U.S. missile strikes, an amalgamation of over two dozen tribal-based guerrilla groups calling themselves the Taliban began to emerge in the Pakistani border areas. These guerrillas won control of North and South Waziristan and merged into a single outfit known as Tariqi Taliban Pakistan, TTP. After consolidating control in the tribal areas, these militants eventually came down out of the hills and began spilling into major Pakistani cities, fueling the wave of suicide bombings that we've seen over the past several years. Before 9-11, terrorist attacks in Lahore were completely unheard of. Now they happen with increasing frequency. There's also been an influx of Pashtun militants in Karachi, Pakistan's industrial hub, causing major political and social tensions there. Unfortunately for Pakistanis, because the United States is literally oceans away, it is they, not us, who have borne the brunt of uh, targets against uh, insurgents, by insurgents. It is also why the State Department's 2009 terrorism report, despite finding an overall decline in terrorist attacks worldwide, discovered that attacks within Pakistan have more than quadrupled from 2006 to 2008. Unfortunately, present U.S. policy is pushing militants deeper into Pakistani cities, strengthening the very jihadist source, uh, forces we <coughs> seek to defeat, and pressing this weakened nuclear-armed country in the direction of civil war. There are many other reasons why a large-scale, long-term military presence is counterproductive to our interests. And it's a subject that I've written on extensively. But I want to make sure I leave enough time for Q&A, so I'll just leave you with this. I think perhaps the worst thing we can do is leave the region entirely. 
It's what we did after nearly a decade of funding the Mujahideen, and we paid for it dearly eight years ago last Friday. But there are also costs remaining in the region, not simply in terms of manpower and resources, but in giving al-Qaeda what it wants, pushing the conflict over into Pakistan, and looking weak by remaining indefinitely, yet possibly accomplishing very little. America should scale down its military presence in the region, continue open relations and intelligence sharing with all countries in the region, deploy special forces for discrete operations against specific targets when feasible, and engage in intensive surveillance as it already does today. Whether al-Qaeda coalesces in Sudan or in Yemen or in Miami, Florida, our policy should not be to redesign a foreign people's way of life or tinker with the importance of their communal identity. As the war in Afghanistan rages on, President Obama should be skeptical of suggestions that the defeat of al-Qaeda depends on a massive troop presence. But I fear that the longer we stay and the more money we spend, the more we'll feel compelled to remain in the region to validate that investment. A similar self-imposed predicament plagued U.S. policymakers during the war in Vietnam. But we draw the wrong lesson from that conflict. Not that America should avoid intervening in another country's disputes, but that America should never give up after having intervened, no matter what the costs. The political discourse has already shifted to whether this has become Obama's Vietnam. I believe that whether it will be or not is entirely his decision. Thank you. Malou Innocent is a foreign policy analyst at the Cato Institute and co-author of the new paper, Escaping the Graveyard of Empires. Read it at Cato.org.